Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London. A church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. Praise God, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're getting ready to finish the chapter. We're going to be looking at verses 14 to 16 as we conclude this section. And um, it's a blessing to be here and to be sharing the word with you. You can turn this down in whichever monitor it is. Um, if you'd permit me, I'd like to pray as we prepare to start. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your faithfulness, for your goodness towards us. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that even though the temperature, Lord, is somewhat um, uncomfortable, Lord, we recognize that you are faithful and consistent and that um, there are many ways in which you will cause it to work together for our good. <laughs> Even if it be, Lord, uh, our ability to um, be a little more alert because we're a little uh, less comfortable. <laughs> so, Lord, do have your way among us today. We thank you, Lord, because Jesus is truly Lord. He is risen from the grave. He is Lord. And we declare that today, Lord, with our lips and our lives. And Lord, this is our heart and our prayer that it would continually be so. Speak to us, Lord, we pray, by your Spirit. Have your way among us, Lord, we pray. As we sang, Lord, we surrender. Lord, we relinquish all trust in ourselves. We relinquish all trust in things and others. And we trust in you, the living God. Thank you, Lord, for your presence among us. In Jesus' name, amen. So in First Timothy chapter 3... 14 to 16. Pastor P gave an extensive recap last week, so I won't. Let me read these verses. Thank you, sis. Amen, though. See what I'm saying, though? God is good. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So at this juncture... Paul is in many ways concluding this section and he's saying to Timothy, I'm hoping to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Now, we recognize this to be the summary purpose verse of the whole letter that we might know how to behave. And there's something in here that communicates something significant to us. You are important. This is being communicated to us in these verses, that you are important. Now you might say, well, how do I really get that from these verses? Paul says to Timothy, look, I'm coming, and I'm coming soon. Paul wasn't even expecting to take long about it. He wasn't hoping to take long about it. He says, I'm coming soon. But furthermore, I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, if I'm coming soon, but if there's any hesitation, if there's any sense of delay, it's important that you have this information in order to communicate it to the people of God. This information is important, and it's important that the important people receive this important information. And he underlines, he underlines this. by stating our identity, the household of God, 
which is the church of the living God. Paul didn't want any, any element of delay to prevent God's people getting this important message. The knowledge of how to behave in the household of God. You see, the reality is that every single one of you play an important part in the life of the local church. And it's so important that it's important we know how to play our part. You get what I'm saying? I'm not trying to play with words today. It is important that we know how to play our part. Your relationship with the Lord, your testimony, your witness, your influence, your contribution is important. Now you might come along each week and don't really feel very important. Well, maybe there might be a chair or two that would miss me if I'm not here. But that's not what this text says. This information is important. How we behave is important because it affects others and reflects on Christ. When Paul talks about behavior here, he's not talking about behavior in just one instance or just when we come together, but he's talking about behavior as in manner of life. So he uses the, the terms in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, for our boast is this, in verse 12, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. So it was that ongoing manner of life that was an encouragement to the believers, a witness to the lost, and a reflection of the image of God. And so how we behave is important. And those things have been addressed in the first three chapters. Not just how we behave individually, but how we behave together as a household. How we may behave in the household of God. You know, they say you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. And that is no less true than in the church. Amen? I'm sure that there are a few people who would rather have chosen better company <laughs> to be in fellowship with. But that choice isn't ours. That is the Lord's choice. And just like our natural families, where I'm sure there may be one or two members of our family that we're glad to see less of, and we would maybe rather that we didn't share the same name. Come on now. All right then. Speak the truth and shame the devil. Amen? Listen. But the reality is they're family. And we as a household are a family. Listen. If friendship is the basis of your commitment to other Christians, then you will have a very shallow, frustrating experience of Christian relationships. If friendship is the basis, if you've come to church just to make new friends, then I feel sorry for you. Because we are so much more than friends. We are family. You see, if friendship is the baseline, common denominator, the thing by which we feel unified with the church, then we will never truly understand what it means to be church. And so we're family of one father and we come together and we are called to love one another and love one another 
by means of how we behave toward one another. Now, for those of you who have um, maybe lived in a uni situation where you've shared residence with other housemates and you've got into that situation where you maybe don't really know these people too well, but you're there at uni, you're studying together, it makes sense to share and, you know, reduce the costs, share the costs. And you're now in this house with these two or three others and you're feeling a little put out. Because this one leaves the bathroom like that and that one leaves the kitchen like that. And you're feeling like, wow, this isn't how it was when I was at home. Or maybe you're the culprit. <laughs> because maybe he was never really schooled at home as to how to share space with others. And you know, there are those times when you've got to kind of maybe say, okay, look, we need to sit down and have a talk about this. How are we going to, like, okay, so if you're going to cook, First of all, don't use my food. <laughs> and if you're going to make food, please clean up after yourself. I'm not your servant. I'm not your chief cook and bottle washer. Remember that there are other people here. Please, when you use the bathroom, rinse away your hairs. I don't really want to see it. It's kind of gross, right? But that's the reality of living together with others. You're in that situation and you're there for a year, maybe more, and you're living as family. It's funny. Kian's in university, my oldest daughter. And she's, um, she was in halls last year. And she's in, um, in, a, in a house residence with some housemates. And I was there a couple of weeks ago when we went up to Manchester for the conference. And I'm like, why is this house so cold? Why is it so dark in here? All of a sudden, she starts know about bills. <laughs> she knows about responsibilities. Listen. Heating ain't cheap, you know, Dad. I said, is now you know. Okay then. I look forward to you coming home and maintaining them standards. <laughs> when you're living with others, you have to take on other considerations. We are a household. We are a family. And then Paul goes from the picture of family, but he clarifies the fact that, you know what, it's a household... We are the household of God, not God's house in the sense that people have taken this verse to say, okay, you might know how you are to behave when you are in God's house. When you are together in the place that you call church, God's house. This is speaking about a household not a building. It's not how you behave when you go to church. So, in our old school, we used to put on our Sunday best and we used to know how to do our church greetings. Bless you, deacon. Bless you, brother. How are you? Yes, I'm blessed and highly favored. And we know how to do our church jig. Because you couldn't do any kind of jig that like, had any kind of worldly appearance. So you had to just kind of take your time and jig. Yeah? You just, just, just your Sunday jig. And you speak in your Sunday language. And then you go out of the doors. And Monday to Saturday you live like the devil. That's not what this is promoting. It's not, this is how you behave when you come into God's house, into the church. But actually, how we behave, how we relate, how we interact with one another. 
the household of God, 24-7, 365 days a year. This is how you live. You see, we are the house of God. We don't go to the house of God. We behave as the household of God. It's not merely how we behave when we're in the building. And Paul extends this thought. You see, we are the temple of God. Back in those days, Christians didn't even have exclusive, exclusive places of worship. You look in Acts 2, it says that they met from house to house. The church was so newly formed, they didn't have buildings and locations identified as churches. The church was truly identified as the people. And the people recognized that they were the house of God. In 1 Corinthians 3, 16, Paul says this, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? And so if you are a Christian, this is making it clear that you are a place of worship. Like, you look missed that. You are a place of worship. What does God say in John 4? That he's looking for worshippers. In response to the Samaritan, is it right that the Messiah will come to... And Jesus is like, look, you know what? Worship ain't in Samaria, and it's not about even Jerusalem, but God is looking for worshippers, people whose lives will be places of worship constantly, 24-7. Hearts adoring the Lord at all times in all that we do. Are you a worshiper? Uh, is your life, is your body a place of worship? The Spirit of God lives in you. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul says it again. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. What a glorious privilege we have in having relationship with God in such a way that His Spirit indwells those that believe, enabling us, empowering, enlightening our understanding to who God is. You see, you are the temple of God. But not just individually. For too long people have said, you know, I have my personal relationship with God, me and God are cool, and, but I don't really do the church thing. Well, that's not biblical. And it's not right according to Scripture. Because when Paul talks about us being the household of God, the church of the living God, when he talks about us being the temple, he is talking about our individual parts summed together. And so collectively, we are a much clearer and much more well-defined picture of what it means to be the place of worship. And this is why our behavior is so important because actually the way we behave as the people of God is an expression of worship. Worship isn't like four songs that we do before the offering and, or the slow songs. Like when I was growing up in church, you had praise and worship. And praise was the fast songs and worship was the slow songs. And that made a lot of sense to me for a long time. 
But there's a clearer picture. So we sing songs of praise and thanksgiving. But that's just one expression of worship. In some places I like it when they say, yeah, we're going to worship. We're just going to worship the Lord in our song, in our singing. We're going to worship the Lord in our giving. We're going to worship the Lord through the ministry of the word. Everything we do is an expression of worship. And so here's a challenge. As the household of God, as the temple of God, is it possible that you could go through a week consciously considering everything you do as an expression of worship? In such a way that people would be able to look at your life and say, hmm, that is a place of worship. That is a place where God is honored and adored. That person's life, I can see that it's holy ground. See, it might be a challenge because we know ourselves. <laughs> we know what we're like. We know how easily it is for us to flip, switch modes, be very ungodly. Sometimes it doesn't take much. And yet God still calls us his people. He still calls us the church of the living God. Listen, the local church is God's people. Now, why do I say the local church? Because when Paul talks about the church of God in his epistles, that is his focus. The local expression of the universal church. So we're all Christians, we're all a part of the church. But are you a part of the local church? Are you in committed relationship with others? You see, God loves the local church. He has given his name to the local church. The church of the living God. The local church is those whom the Lord has set his love upon. We are his team. We are his squad, his batch, his ladies and man them. We are the church of the living God. That's whose we are. You know when you was at school, right? You know there were certain people that you wouldn't mess about with. Because you know like, oh, you know that's so-and-so's brother, you know. Oh, that's so-and-so's sister, you know. Do you know who their dad is? I heard that he's a serious guy. And so their identity as an individual was directly associated with those that bear their name. To the point where it affected the way you related to them. We bear the name of the living God. We are his love and his delight. You are the church of the living God. In Hebrews 11, it says, God is not ashamed to be called their God of those that have faith in him. That's crazy. God is not ashamed to be called your God. You are the church of the living God. Come on. Oh my gosh. It's all right. Now listen. We need to love one another the way God loves the church. Think about that for a moment. God who is perfect in majesty and power, awesome in all his ways, is not ashamed to be called our God. He gives us his name, the church of the living God. We don't serve no dead God, no wooden, metal God that has no eyes and no ears and no hands by which to reach us. And we serve the living God. The living God who has set his love upon us 
But do we love one another? The way that God loves us. You see, we're waiting for people to please us before we will commit to loving them. We're waiting for people to invite us out. We're waiting for people to come and speak to us. We're waiting for, we're waiting for people to satisfy our expectations before we will commit to love them. Is that what God does to us? Imagine if God waited for us to meet his expectations. Imagine if God waited for us to satisfy him in all his perfections and impeccability. Imagine, at what point do you think God might even begin to love us? If he was waiting for you to fulfill his desire, to fulfill his expectation, to satisfy and please him, at what point do you think that God would start loving you? It's a rhetorical question. It's all right. <laughs> you know, they say hell would freeze over first. It's one of them ones. You see, the reality is that God's grace in Christ means that he loves you. He is backing you in his son. He desires and has purpose to use you. You are the church of the living God. And he hasn't waited for us. In fact, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. He's worthy of praise. When we were living in rebellion, hating God, and we might say, oh, well, I never really hated God, you know, because I, you know, I, 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 I was born in a, in a godly house and yeah, we, I knew the gospel and I never really hated God. And yet you loved yourself more than you love God. That is to hate God. That's not to truly recognize him for who he is. We deceive ourselves in thinking that in thinking that a little degree of religiosity is really quite impressive to God. And yet still, he chose to set his love upon you, to love you in giving his son. We know the verse, right? John three sixteen. For God so loved the world. For God so, or for so God... In this manner, God loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The giving of Christ was the ultimate expression of God's love toward his people. And he done that before all. All the world. You ever doubt if God loves you? Look to the cross. The cross is timeless, literally timeless. All those before had an expectation of the arrival of the Messiah and his atoning work for sin. You saw it in the sacrificial system where they killed lambs year in, year out. High priests going into the Holy of Holies, sprinkling the blood on the altar. It all represented the one who would come and give his life as a sacrifice. And those that believed were redeemed by faith in he who was to come. And we now who are looking back are redeemed by faith. The timeless work of the cross of Jesus Christ screams love. The church of the living God and so may we love one another as the church the way that God loves the church. 
The church is God's plan A. Furthermore, there ain't no plan B. The church is God's plan, full stop. And you would think us ragtag, roughneck, ruffian, shabby individuals that attempt to pass for Christians. <laughs> God loves us with an unconditional, relentless love. It's a wonder. And so, we are the household of God, which is the church of the living God. A pillar and buttress of the truth, it says in verse 15. A pillar and buttress of truth. So Paul extends the notion of family as household, as temple, and he goes into a picture of a building, a construction metaphor or example. And he talks about the church of the living God being a pillar and buttress of truth. Turn with me to 1 Peter 2, if you would. And here we see Peter communicating the same sentiments with similar considerations. And look at how Peter addresses behavior in the consideration of our identity as the temple of God. He says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants. Infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So if you've really tasted that the Lord is good, then do this. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones. Aha. So we are a temple. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? Amen. We are individually, but we are living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I just want, I'm just going to throw this in passing. Just associate the word sacrifice with spiritual house. Sacrifice. Now you know what that means, even though we don't like to know what that feels like. Sacrifice associated with spiritual house. For it stands in Scripture, verse 6, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. This is those who do not believe. But you, by contrast, on the other hand, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies. Why? For what purpose? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What an identity, what a status we hold as being God's people. God in his grace and his mercy has received us. Flaws and all. He's accepted us and set his love upon us. He has given us his name. We are the church of the living God. Beloved, verse 11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, that means temporary residents, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so we see the connection that Peter makes with regards to our identity and our status as it relates to our behavior. As, it, as we consider what God has done for and in us, making us his own, it gives concrete reason for our response to that. And so back in 1 Timothy 3, in verse 15, we are regarded as the pillar and buttress of truth. A pillar is a load-bearing object that provides strength, stability, support, and structure to a building. It is normally a weight-bearing object that bears weight from above. So we look here and we see pillars along the side of the building. And we see that there is much weight being placed upon those pillars. They are load-bearing. They are weight-bearing. A buttress is an, is an object which extends on the outside of a structure, adding support and strength and stability. That is to be a description of us. And so I guess the question is, are you a pillar? Are you holding the weight of the truth? Are you bearing, supporting, strengthening the cause of truth, the testimony of Christ, as revealed in the people of God, are you a pillar in the house of God? Or are you just getting in the way? Nobody likes pillars at concert venues. Nobody likes... You imagine sitting in a cinema with pillars. And you just happen to get there late as we tend to. And end up behind a pillar. That's just ruined the night. See, pillars can be very useful but they can also be quite inconvenient. Are you a pillar? Are you weight-bearing? Are you a buttress? <laughs> Adding support and strength and stability. We see in Revelation... Chapter 3, it says in verse 12, Those who conquer, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. This is Jesus speaking. We're called to be pillars. May we aspire to be pillars. May we be people who can take weight, who can take 
responsibility, who can take load and add strength and aid with stability and provide support and help define structure. These pillars are definitive to the structure of this building. The building wouldn't have this structure if it weren't for these pillars bearing weight. And as we embrace the truth, we are called to bear the weight of responsibility in the family of God, sharing that weight. You notice that there are several pillars. There isn't just one bearing the weight of the whole building. And it's a blessing that there are those that we can look at as being pillars. Individuals whose lives are stable, whose lives are consistent. I mean, you imagine you come in here and one week the pillars are there and the next week they're in the middle. The week after they're at the back and the building is just, just swerving and sw each week and you don't know if it's going to collapse on you or not, if it's going to remain upright. You expect a pillar to be constant, to be sturdy. I know some of you guys that like to sit behind, beside the pillars, you know, you, you know you can get a little, a little nestle up on that pillar when you're feeling a bit bored. You want to catch a quick 40 winks. Yeah, you think that we can't see everybody from here. And so we are called to be pillars. We are described as being pillars. And as we walk in the way of Christ, availing ourselves of his grace, we find that truly we fulfill that because he adds stability to our lives. And he is our support and he is our strength. Why? Because he's the chief cornerstone. He's the foundation. And these pillars are worth nothing without the foundation. And so the pillars stand because the foundation is solid. And when Christ is truly the foundation of our life, that's evidenced by the fact that we're able to stand. And you know, there's storms and there's rain and everything will come and beat on this building. You know how many hundreds of years this building's been here? Because the foundation is sure, the building is solid, the pillars are in place. And I believe that God's appealing to us. Will you be a pillar in the house of God? Will you so submit your life to the work of Christ that you would have a stability and a strength to add to the household of God? At a conference a couple of weeks ago, Lecrae spoke on manhood. And he said, you know, we stand with guys and guys will, you know, come and they will, you know, confess, make themselves accountable. It's like, you know what, I'm wrestling with porn. I just got this lust issue. I got this greed issue. I just, I just want to make money. I don't want to love God. And he'd be like, cool, amen, praise God. Let's pray. Let's get it in. Let's walk together through this. But it becomes an issue when it's a repeated cycle. Weeks and weeks and months and months to the point where, fam, where's your fight? Like, this is war out here. Where's your fight? You've got to roll up your sleeves and take hold of your weapon and, and get to war. I'm ready to stand with you, but are you fighting? Where's the stability? Where's the strength? being exerted by means of the work of Christ. And so we have opportunity to be pillars, to be a buttress. I don't know if these pillars, some, some buildings you'll see, they will have uh, an external um, 
object that kind of attaches to the wall and it goes down to the floor. And that's what's called a buttress. Sometimes they call them flying buttresses. And they help to provide stability so the, the building don't wobble. And it has not just vertical solidness, but horizontal solidness. Because you know that, you know what? The breeze is going to blow in life. I mean, all of us are, are, are experienced in life to know that it's not a rose garden without thorns. It's not a green field that don't need cutting, that don't need mowing, don't need weeding. You have to get the weed all out and start uprooting those stinging nettles because that's life. And issues will come upon us as a church. And without pillars and buttresses, we're just going to be shaky and wobbling all over the place. And people will look to a man like Pastor P and say, it's a pillar, praise God. Pastor Rob or Mikey P or... But we need more than just a handful of pillars in order for the truth of God to be magnified among us. Make that your ambition, to be a pillar, be a buttress, be sturdy, stable, supportive. Amen? Amen? Verse 16, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Now, at this point, as Paul comes to the conclusion of this section, he breaks out in song. Now, literally... This is recognized to be a hymn or a portion of a hymn that was common within the early church, even at the time of Paul. And so as he hits this verse here, he breaks out in song. And maybe even as he was penning the lyrics, he was singing it in adoration of our Lord. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Now, I want to put more rhymes in there, but <laughs> before enough witnesses. <laughs> and this is the truth, that Paul now begins to express truth in song. He, he says that, look, the church is the ground and pillar of truth. That we corporately, even with, within society, people are looking for truth, like Pastor P said last week. People want to know, like, what is life all about? How is it supposed to be lived? They're supposed to be able to look to the church and find solid answers and solid example of truth. We are that people. That's who God has called us to be. And as he looks to bring Timothy into remembrance of that truth, it's almost as if he would say like the like we used to in the old school. And you know the songwriter says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And he starts to communicate substance in song. That's why we are selective about the songs that we sing. Not primarily for stylistic reasons, but just for substance. They say that it's easier to sing heresy than it is to preach it. And we see that as Paul raises a song, raises a chorus, he brings forth one of great substance. And he is the same apostle who said in Colossians 3.16 that we teach and admonish one another in our songs. Songs aren't just meant to feel good or sound good. It's great when they do and they ought to, but not just that. Our songs must communicate substance. That's one of the reasons why I've got such mad love for Christian rap. Because... As you know, I grew up in church, and I enjoyed singing in church, my first love. And when I got exposed to 
certain guys who were MCs, I began to be exposed to a degree of truth that I never heard in songs generally. When I, I put on Cross Movement Heaven's Mentality, I was like, these guys are not playing. It was like sitting through sermons, track after track. That's, let alone Christology. I mean, just the album is titled Christology, you know. It's beautiful when songs have substance. And God loves music. God loves singing. And you know what? We don't have to sound like Chris Brown or we don't have to sound like Luther Vandross for you older heads. We don't have to sound like Whitney Houston to please God in our song. Now, it helps. <laughs> I'm not, listen, music's got laws, right? Music's got rules, right? I'm, I'm a lion, bruv. Thank you, Will. So anyone who loves music loves it when the laws are kept. Don't break the law up there, bruv. All of us know what it's like. We all know that moment when someone's broken some musical law. You watch X Factor. I can sing, I got the X Factor. <laughs> what is the problem? But you know what? God doesn't define the quality of our song by the quality of our voice. Let us make a joyful noise unto the Lord. And so, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Oh, I have to say this one more thing about songs and singing. Listen, it's not even that God loves songs and God loves singing. I mean, we got the Psalms right. We read the Psalms. Sometimes we pray the Psalms. We recite the Psalms. But you know what? The Psalms are actually songs. That was like the Hebrew top 150. <laughs> right there. They're songs. So often we can, even in our theological astuteness, want to look down on artistic expression as being kind of below par. But it all matters to God. If you're a singer, you're an MC. You, 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 uh, listen, these are gifts given by God Amen. to express the wonder of his glory. Amen. In fact, God sings. Hmm. Some of you didn't even know that. In Zephaniah 3 verse 17. Uh-oh. All right then. Listen, I'm going to back it. Zephaniah 3, you know that portion of the Bible that the pages are stuck together. <laughs> Verse 17, it says, The Lord your God is in the midst of you, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Who's going to do that? What a beautiful thing. God sings over you. Woo! Yeah. God sings over you. God loves singing. May we love singing to him and about him. God was manifest in the flesh. And in this short stanza of the song that we have, we have a summary that encapsulates the life and mission of Christ. 
He was manifested in the flesh. And so we see that this speaks of the fact that God, eternally existing, took on flesh. Jesus was real flesh and blood. At that time, they had a, a, a cult called the Gnostics who were saying that it was just an apparition, just a ghost, a duppy. But Jesus was real. He took on flesh, having existed prior to that. Important. And it wasn't just that the Father decided to put on different appearances. So I am the Father and I will just appear to you to be the Son and then later on I'll appear to you to be the Spirit. Such is this mystery that it communicates and reveals to us the triune nature of God. The same triune nature of God that we see expressed in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, Elohim, which is a compound singular term. You think, wow, you're trying to get deep out here. If I was to say to you the word bunch, what would I be referring to, a singular or a plural? Oh. Where's our grammatarians? Our grammatians. Is bunch single or plural? All right, so a bunch is a singular term. It's, it's speaking of one thing, a bunch. If I said bunches, plural, right? But bunch is singular, but already you know by the use of that word that it's speaking of something singular of many parts, right? Hence the confusion. Is it single? Is it plural? Hmm, I'm not sure. Well, it's single. It's a singular term. But it is a compound. It's made up of many parts. And the, 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 the name Elohim in the Hebrews, the very first verse of the Bible, is a compound singular term. It is one unit of many parts. That's what it represents when it says, in the beginning, God. And then in Genesis 1.26, we, we see it says, and God said, Elohim said, let us make man in our image. So right from the very beginning, the triune nature of God was nestled in scripture. And when we see this word mystery here, it speaks of truth that was once hidden, now revealed. Amen, Pastor P? Amen, bruv. We heard that a few times in Ephesians. And so, the second person of the eternal Godhead took on flesh. And in taking on flesh, there is a, an assumption. Remember, this is a song, so they're not breaking it down in detailed line upon line style. Having taken on flesh, he died. And he was vindicated by the Spirit. We see this in Romans 1, where it talks about the fact that the offering of Christ was validated and approved by God in that God raised him from the dead. He was vindicated. His death for our sin was satisfactory. His job was well done. And God did not allow him to remain dead, but raised him by his spirit. He was seen by angels. I mean, we see at the birth of Christ there were angels. At the resurrection, at the tomb, who was there? Angels. At his ascension, there were angels. He was proclaimed among the nations. This same Christ, this real person in time and space, second person of the Godhead, the eternal Son of God, was preached among the nations. No one kept it a secret. Furthermore, people received the word and believed on him. And he was taken up in glory. This is the substance of our faith. And this is the truth that Paul brought to Timothy's remembrance 
in light of the false teachers who were trying to deny these facts. This song communicates the substance of our faith and walk with God. It is not reliant upon us. It's not reliant upon how convinced we are. It's not reliant upon how much we understand. Jesus is Lord. I'm going to ask Tim and the guys to come and join me as I close. Truly, the understanding of the Godhead is one that we often must wrestle with, but it is not something that is hidden or concealed. It has been revealed in Scripture that Christ came and that Christ, who is truly the ultimate pillar, who is the ultimate strength and support. He is the foundation and the capstone. And he is everything that is between. Has made us his own and set his love upon us. And if you are here today and you do not know Jesus Christ, you've not submitted to him as your Lord and Savior, you don't know the love of God. Because God's love is found in Christ. And your existence, which really is all it is, is an empty, unfulfilled, and unsatisfying one. And it was necessary that the Father send the Son in order to make a people his own, his own family. And as a part of the family of God, rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice with singing. Rejoice with joy that you are the Lord's. You are the Lord's. He set his name upon you. He has made you his own. And even on our worst day, he still loves us. He still loves you because of Jesus. Because your relationship with him is not dependent upon yourself, but completely and entirely dependent on the work of Christ. And Christ, having done the work and been vindicated by the Spirit, raised from the dead, we are able to rejoice and now live in response to that. Lives of obedience as we love one another. Can we stand? serve a mighty and living God. We serve the eternal God. God who is the same yesterday, today and forever. His priorities are the same. He loves his people the same. May we truly delight in him and in the fellowship of the saints the household of God, the church of the living God. Thank you, Father, for your unreserved love that you've shown in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for making us a house, making us a family. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us to love one another as you love us. Lord, the fact that we would be your plan 
your pillar. Lord, it's, it's just a wonder because we see ourselves and we see our faults and our flaws and our weaknesses and we know that we are nothing and yet we rejoice at the fact that in our weakness your strength is made perfect and so may we through the lives that we live uphold the truth and not contradict it may we bring honor to your name as we reflect your image and not bring your name into disrepute. And may we do so above all things by our love for one another. Thank you, Lord. Be glorified. Amen. To find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.